Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelican. This is episode 109, and tonight's list is a recent Fresh Five list that's covering the months of roughly January through May. Um, and what this list is, if this is the first time you're listening to one of these episodes, is Frank always keeps track of all the movies that he's watching. Um, some things make lists, some things don't. Um, but he's watching movies from every genre, every decade, you know, all the time. And um, these lists just kind of constitute the top five movies that he's watched, regardless of genre or decade or any of those kind of like typical lists that we do. Um, so I'm assuming, Frank, that there's probably a lot more other than these five that you probably wanted to mention, is my guess. As yeah. Like, like um, runners up. One of them that was originally supposed to be a fresh five, but we ended up talking about it on another list, but I can't remember which one was um, St. Maud, um, which I really loved that I watched recently. Um, movie called Synchronic, um, made by... And what are the names of those movies that those guys did? It's those Benson and um, I can't remember the other one's name. They're like a yeah. filmmaking duo. They've done a few other movies that usually deal with like um, time or like the malleability of reality. Um, Moorhead, Aaron Moorhead, and Justin Benson. Yeah. Um, Synchronic was good, but not quite good enough. I didn't think to make the list. Um, there was No Madland which was on the list until I took it off. Um, but which I really enjoyed um, quite a bit. Um, there was Promising Young Woman, which I thought might make the list just because of all the Oscar buzz, but I was a little let down by it um, in the end. So uh, there was a movie that I watched called Night, Night, of, Night of the Kings about a young boy in Africa who gets... Um, sent to this jail which is like one of the worst jails um i guess in the country um and he basically becomes like a shahrazad where he has to continuously tell stories in order to avoid his own death um in some kind of like weird like almost cult ritual um where someone sacrificed in order to maintain like the power of the current leader of the prison and it was it was decent like it had some really good stuff in it but it was a little over long i thought in the end um there's a horror movie i watched a couple weeks ago called come true um it's another one that's kind of about like perception and reality <clears throat> um and it had some really good moments to it but again i thought it was a little clunky like in its ending um but still decent um i really heavily consider putting the wrong turn sequel did we talk about that somewhere else no um, you, I thought of, you told me about it off air, but I thought about putting that on there because it was just um, I thought pretty amazing, honestly, for a reboot to a series that I don't really hold in very high esteem. Um, I thought it was a much better interpretation of that same idea of like the people lost in the woods thing. Um, and then a Jewish horror movie called The Vigil, which, again, is one that I thought had some really great stuff in it, but just ended up being a little clunky overall. Um and then the last one, and I don't know, um, there was Aquafina movie, uh, The Farewell, which was another one that I um, heavily considered putting on there because I just really, um, really loved it. Um, but in the end, I decided not to put it on there because yeah. I think I have to save it for something else, honestly. But um, 
Yeah, that was a really good movie. Yeah, that was one that just really, uh, I found it really touching and mm-hmm. effective. Um, so, yeah. So, watched a lot of good stuff. I haven't been able to bring myself to spend the money to watch Minari yet, although I am almost positive that Minari would have made this list just because it looks so good, like the trailers for it. I, I think it's really my kind of movie, but it was $20 to rent for a long time, and now they only have it to buy for $14.99, so... Mm. That's be- like- that's becoming really problematic with a lot of things. Like, um, I just randomly, I noticed like the other day that uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, I know is on stars for free. But if you go to like rent it or something like that, and I just happen look be looking something up and saw this, they're still trying to get you to buy it for fourteen ninety nine. There's yeah, no rental crazy. option, and this is what two years later. I mean, yeah, yeah, pretty yeah, more, more than two years, right? I think it was the summer of 19. Yeah, I think I guess you're right. Damn, back when we used to be able to go to the movies. Uh-huh. Mm. Also, um, The Father, the one that uh, Hopkins won Best Actor for, was another one that I considered watching. Because um, it was like, I've seen clips from his performance and it looks pretty amazing in it. Sure. Um, but it's another one where it's like $20 and right. you can only buy it, like you can't rent it. So that's kind of kept me from watching several movies, really. Um, There's other stuff that should have come out at this point. Like there's a horror movie called Antlers that I think is going to be really good. Um, There's the, and I've mentioned it like. (laughs) You've been been talking about how you think Antlers are going to be good for two years now. Dude, it looks so good. Like we we saw that trailer before the lighthouse and I was so impressed. And like people are conspiring to keep me from watching we were, we were just talking briefly about loss before this podcast and expectations and look at you two years you're going to be sitting there oh it's gonna be good like, and it's going to be so disappointing but it's, you know whatever it's fine at least it'll be an experience um the a24 movie the green knight was another one that i i feel like sh- i should have seen probably a couple times by now but now it's pushed out into june i think before mm-hmm. it releases, so that's another one that yeah Probably would have been on this list. It may end up making a list at some point, but um, not there now. So, and Ari Ari Oster um, has a new movie that he's making, and um, uh, what's his name? The other one, uh, shit, the lighthouse guy, um, Robert Eggers. Yes, um, has a movie he's making too, and that's another one that I feel like. The Northman, I think it's called, or something like that. That's it. Yep. That's um, a, a Bjork, Nicole Kidman, Ethan Hawke, and amazing. Yeah. And I've 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 seen like screenshots from it from the production, and it just looks beautiful. But I don't know. Another one I'll probably have to wait seven million years to be able to see. But this is a good list. It's it um is, yeah. five five movies that I really enjoyed uh, quite a bit. So I'm looking forward to talking about them. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. So um, just before we get started, I just wanted to let everybody know next week we will be doing the top five movies that Chris loves and Frank is indifferent to, uh, which picks up from last May's list, which was the top five movies that Chris loves and Frank hates. Uh, I think that's a good list, Um, but uh, we'll see where where Frank stands next week um, on these movies. Um, I was super indifferent to the one that I watched already. (laughs) Right. Already been successful. All right. I mean, like, like my goal here is to like 
well, actually, if it tips the other way and you end up hating it, that's still fine, too. Um, that'll at least be funny. Uh, and then we will be taking our monthly break and then coming back with the top five horror movies of 1994. Yep, 94. Yes, 94. Um, I'm starting to get iffy on the years now because I think of months and then years and I get iffy on Right, it feels like in the fifth month we should be in 95, but... Right, and then um, and then in June we have um, a first watch uh, that friends of the podcast Michael Bluzzo and Ryan Wallmaker will be back on to watch uh, Mister Nanny, uh, the Hulk Hogan uh, comedy, and we will be doing the top five James Bond movies and uh, the horror movies in 1995. So that's what's coming up for the rest of this month and next month. Um, if you have any suggestions for us, you can always reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, or our Gmail account, two guys, five movies at gmail.com. That's the number two and five. All right. So number five on your list this week, Frank, is 2021 Psycho Gorman. It is directed by Stephen Kostansky. Stars Nita Josie Hanna, Owen Meyer, Matthew Nineber. It has a 91% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 61% from audiences. Do you want to tell us a little bit about this uh, new movie and why you liked it so much? Uh, so the movie follows a brother and sister. Um, the sister is a is younger but is domineering over her older brother. Um, in the middle of a game of what they call crazy ball, they unearth a mysterious relic buried in their backyard. Um, the relic happens to be like the tomb of this, I don't know what you call him, like galactic conqueror, um, this giant like beast um, who gets free and goes and slaughters these local thugs and is then um, building his plan to, I guess, like decimate the universe again. Um, when Mimi, Mimi is the, the girl. Um, Luke is the young boy. They track him to the shoe factory where he's hiding out. And Mimi happens to have this gem that gives her control over him. Um, so then it becomes this really weird, like super graphically violent, um, almost like a, like a buddy cop kind of movie right. where Mimi uses her influence over, um, Psycho Gorman PG who they, they dub this galactic conqueror um, to just do like ridiculous things, like hang out with her family and make this boy she loves or is interested in like fall in love with her, which he does by turning him into a giant, like sentient brain creature. Uh Um, It turns out that he was imprisoned by this um, like galactic tribunal of good people. Um, I can't remember. They're called like Templars or something like that. Um, so they send their avatar which is like this horrific like angelic creature to earth to um re-imprison him um mimi is very sensitive and at one point kind of like turns her back on psycho gorman which allows his former compatriots to like beat him up and attempt to kill him um but they eventually reconcile after she forces him to apologize um and he just decimates all of them. It's one of my one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Um, in the end, it's uh, the brother and the mother um, are kind of like swayed to the side of the Templars. Um, fuck, what is the name of the like Pandora or something like that? Is the name of the the avenging angel? 
Um, whereas Mimi's dad, who's yeah, probably is. the most like underrated character in the movie, who's this just like absolute like wasted slacker who doesn't do anything to help out around the house and is always making excuses about um why he can't do anything. Um and they fight in a game of crazy ball, like for all the marbles. Um but in the end, you know, I guess I guess you could call it good triumphs in the sense that Psycho Gorman and his team are like victorious. Um it it reminds me a lot. So first of all, I don't know how much of the movie is not done in practical effects, but it feels like almost the whole movie is all just practical. Um, it's costumes and, you know, like um, spurting blood, like for real. And uh-huh. um, and in that sense, like it, it has kind of a cheesy element to it, but they embrace it so much that it doesn't feel like cheap. Right. It just feels fun, I guess. Like, I love the way the costumes look. I mean, it's very much like a, like if you took an episode of Power Rangers and just added a bunch of like decapitations and limb rendings and people get turned into like fleshless zombies, basically. Um, I think that the two child actors in this movie are great. Like, yeah. I think they have a really um, good rapport with each other and with the adults and their dialogue comes off maybe not a hundred percent like naturalistic, but still like, it doesn't feel forced like when you have kid actors like saying dirty words or talking about things that are kind of like more mature or whatever. I mean, it's, it's still kind of embraces like the, the childlike nature of the two. Um, reminds me a lot of like, in some ways, like the way that like Calvin is portrayed in Calvin and Hobbes um, as still a kid, but with like a large amount of like maturity in terms of like his knowledge base and his perception maybe not so much like his interactions but that's true for Mimi too because she's very very willful and her feelings are easily hurt and she responds to feeling like slighted by like the most extreme reactions in a lot of cases um but it's just it's it's a really fun movie it it's easy to watch it makes you laugh like pretty consistently throughout and it's still entertaining um I mean, it's much more of like a straight comedy than it is a horror movie, but the horror elements, it, it embraces them and it, you know, it does a really good job with them. Um, Psycho Gorman is I, like some of the funniest lines, yeah, including like the fact that Psycho Gorman might be gay and um, just his like absolute like frustration and not being able to like destroy these people that are controlling his life. But then the fact that it sort of like leads him to develop an actual bond of like friendship and family with him, which is um really well done. So yeah, so I mean it's just a really fun movie. Something that I just randomly like I was scrolling through one Saturday morning when Frankie wasn't home and I saw it pop up and I had never heard of it before. Right. Um and I was like, you know what? Like I think it was like six ninety nine or something. I was like, whatever. I got a couple hours to kill, I might as well watch it. And I was really impressed. So this actually, this may have been the first movie to make the Fresh Five list. It's the first one that you, uh, no. The second movie, your second movie on your list, I think was probably the first. But um, you told me about this pretty early on. like. Yeah, I mean, I watched it in maybe January. Oh, really? So. Oh, okay. You didn't tell oh, me about I, it. Yeah, me. I didn't tell you about it. I just watched gotcha. it. 
okay, and put gotcha. it down on my list. Yeah, it's it, it's been a while since I um since I rented it. So gotcha. I think it's I think it's free on Shutter now streaming. It is. Yep. Yeah. Shutter so, got Shutter got the rights to it. So definitely worth watching if you have whatever it is like ninety minutes to spare, or however long. Yeah, I think if you're like a parent that doesn't mind, like I think it's good for it's fine for children of a certain age as well. Like as long as the child, the parents don't mind, you know, some violence and curse words and stuff like that. I mean, um, honestly, just maybe it's just because I just mentioned it, but it does remind me of something like those '90s comedies, like Mr. Nanny, just funny actually like actually funny and well done and but it reminds me of those kind of like you know let's throw this you know thing into the family unit that like doesn't make sense you know that's incongruous to the environment and you know tell a story that way like that was something that was very popular in the 80s and 90s so it feels like a throwback in that way um i mean mr nanny is a good example or probably more like Suburban Commando, really. Sure. Suburban Commando is a better example, probably. Um, or the Pacifier, maybe, like, 10, 10 15 years after yeah. that. Which is weird, because, like, I have a very perverse love for the Pacifier. We we thought it was pretty funny. Well, yeah. we also made fun of it. But, I mean, like, at two. But it was, like, it was simultaneously that was better than we thought and still ludicrous at yeah, times. Yeah, absolutely ridiculous. Like the whole Nazi subplot was mind blowing in that movie at the time. It was like, what the fuck is this Nazi right. shit? And then it's funny when you find out it's singing in the rain, or not singing in the rain, but um, sound of music. Um, but yeah, like I, I, I think that at you know like ninety some minutes, um, it's just the right length. I think it's very entertaining. Um, I think the characters are engaging and funny, and you know. Like it, it meets my criteria for child performances, which is not overly childlike or annoying. Or um, what was I telling you about that I was watching the other day that was like the worst child character in the world? In it, it was one of those goddamn Nick Cage movies. Oh. Anyway, well, yeah. one of the ones I watched just like so fucking bad, where it was like, what, what? Who spawned? Was it like, Grand? Was thing? it Grand Isle? Was that did I have the kid? Yeah, there's no there. Nah. That kid's a baby in that movie. Mm. That had some awful characters, so I can see how you'd be confused. Yeah, I was really, like, I was really impressed with Nita Josie Hanna, who plays Mimi in this. I thought that she was, um, I thought she nailed a lot of the material that she was given, um, of being this kind of like almost uh slightly obnoxious like you know type a personality um and i think she did it without feeling too annoying at all and unless she was supposed to be kind of annoying in the sequence you know it it wasn't overdone in any way um i was really impressed with her i liked her a lot and i thought that she worked the best probably off of that gorman character um throughout the movie and kind of like the the chemistry between that voice actor and and her worked really well. Um, that was the number one complaint from audiences, though. The sixty-one percent from audiences. And one of the number one complaints was that they hated her in this. Really? Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't. Yeah. I don't agree with that. I right. think that um, a lot of them thought it wasn't funny too. But no, that's. Yeah. I don't know. Whatever. I guess right. each their own or whatever. But to me, it's um. 
to me it's just i don't know i mean like it's it was yeah, the perfect um, saturday morning you know it didn't feel like a waste of time it was definitely something that i enjoyed but it also felt like not so heavy that i had to like feel weighted down you know while i was eating my spaghettios waiting to go play nintendo or something right that's a sneak 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 peek into my saturday mornings um yeah i'm gonna be honest because we do have uh, all these movies are from 2017 to present that you have on this list and one trend that i like saw in reading reviews because i don't often get to unless i'm like we're watching a movie and i just look it up i don't often get to read a lot of reviews in the present day like we're usually looking at stuff from i'm looking at stuff from like you know 10 to 40 years ago um but like looking at the audience reviews for some of these things uh it really does feel, and like all this is evidenced by stuff like Justice League, the Zack Snyder cut, and all this kind of stuff, is that it does certainly feel like there's a culture war that goes on in these audience kind of uh, aggregate review type places. Because sure. um, it feels like anything that like is primarily starring women as lead roles or is you know directed by a woman or something along those lines always have lower scores than movies with male stars or directed by men. Um, it also feels like if there feels like there's a liberal agenda in something that the audience scores are much lower. Um, so it's really weird to see like some, and look, there's always going to be that distinction probably between critical acclaim and, you know, uh, maybe like how people that lean to the right might feel about a movie. Um, but there's some really big uh, noticeable gaps between audience scores and, and critical scores um, looking at these movies and stuff like that. And like the more I dug into them, it does feel like there's sexism um, that underlies some of it, that there's kind of like a anti, you know, progressive sentiment that underlies some of the stuff with audiences. Yeah. And I just find that really interesting. I mean, I, I agree. And I actually kind of, second guess myself sometimes in that respect i mean obviously like i'm i don't know like i would like to say that there's no sexism in how i view like a movie or a performance like i just like things that i like right but i thought that when i was watching especially you know like promising young woman which had all this oscar hype and just how disappointed i was with that movie overall because i felt like it was just too ham-fisted and it bothered me because i had to like really look at myself like am i am i disliking this movie because it tends to have like a sort of almost anti-male theme or am i just disliking the fact that it's so obvious with the way that it presents it so it's it's hard like and it feels yeah. sometimes like you don't want to like openly criticize things because you feel like maybe you'll get accused of whatever being like sexist or racist or you know sure. like purposefully downing something and same thing when we talked about captain marvel you know like right how much we 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 both dislike that movie and i think that ultimately it's really difficult to articulate why you like something maybe not even difficult but i think that sometimes people don't listen when you articulate why you like something that is like made by you know a, a woman or someone who's black or someone who's asian and 
I don't know. And then yeah. I look at myself and I think like, well, like three of my favorite movies in the past few years were directed by women, you know. Right. So I don't know. Yeah, like maybe it, it was funny that. when when we were doing, you know, because we haven't necessarily advertised this, but like we've certainly been adding in episodes in the past and this year specifically to kind of go along with certain months, you know, in terms of, you know, women's month, you know, like, um, you know, we've always done stuff in February with like black artists um, since the beginning of the podcast, like, you know, we, you know, have something for pride month in July, like, and we were talking about the, you know, the, you know, specifically like this, what are we going to do for women's month? And I was like, well, maybe we do directors, but it's like, you've always been really good about that of like featuring unconsciously like female directors you know throughout like you know the the history of doing this podcast like um there there's been a lot of female directors um specifically back in like the seven even in the 70s the 80s and 90s that you were like featuring when honestly you didn't have that many um that were being that were being given attention i suppose i should say I mean, I think part of that is because they really had to be great maybe to get the opportunity in the past. So sure. You definitely get this like you look at somebody like like um what's her name? Like Agnes Varda and like she's an amazing director. Um some of my favorite movies, you know, from that time period, like the sixties and the seventies. Um and I, I like I like her just as much as I like a lot of my other favorite directors from that time period. So I don't know. Right. So anyway, I wanted to bring that up because we are going to see this develop and we're going to see it develop with the number four movie on your list, which is The Relic from 2020. Um, this is directed by Natalie Erica James and it stars Emily Mortemeyer, Robin Nevin and Bella Heathcote. It has a 92 percent from critics. It has a 49 percent from audiences um so do you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and what it is that you uh, like about it so much i'm really surprised by how low those scores are yeah. Hmm. Yeah. um the basic premise is that a mother and daughter who are moderately estranged in the sense that they don't really share much in common anymore um have been summoned to go check basically on the welfare of the grandmother um who lives alone um where does this shit take place? Like in Australia or some shit? Or yeah, it's I think it's Australia. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so they go to stay with the grandmother. The grandmother's missing from the house. Um, they can tell that she's possibly suffering from early stage dementia, in the sense that she leaves notes for herself all over the place, and everything's in disarray. And um, when the grandmother comes back, there's something oddly off about her including like really strong swings and emotion um throughout the movie you get these little glimpses of <clears throat> this awful like cabin where there's this creeping mold all over the place and including a corpse that's covered completely in mold um they discover that the grandmother has some odd wounds on her including a almost like gaping like festering wound on her chest that's just like black um Again, there's like mood swings where the grandmother is sometimes really loving and um, embracing of especially the granddaughter, sometimes really cold and like aggressive towards her. Um, you find out that at one point, the grandmother who had had this friendship with um, 
a young boy who lived next door that I guess he has Down syndrome, maybe. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, where they used to hang out and the boy would like provide company for her. <clears throat> and during a game of hide and seek, she locked him in a closet and left him there for um, a very long period of time, like hours. Um, you eventually, as the women stay in the house, it becomes more sinister. Um, the granddaughter gets lost, like in the back of the house, like in this closet where the boy was and finds almost like another house in the walls behind the house, um, where the, uh, geology, geology or whatever the geometry of the place like shifts and the walls move in and there's no back tracing or steps. Um, eventually her and, uh, Emily Mortimer as a mother get trapped in there. Um, and the grandmother is kind of like stalking them is now this like almost unrecognizable, like creature. Um, but they eventually escape. Um, and then when you think they've finally gotten away, uh, Emily Mortimer goes back in because she can't leave her mother like that, even if it's she's almost unrecognizable, um, where she then kind of like molts into a different being um, that's basically just like um, like a skinless, I guess, like black husk of a creature. Um, and the grandmother, the daughter and the mother lay down together. And then you see the peeking out over her shirt. Um, the mother has like the beginnings of the same looking like wound. Um, that wasn't nearly as good a description as like, I think this movie deserves. Um, so I think this movie works really well in two ways. Um, first of all, I think it works really well. as like a, a haunted house slash possession movie. Um, I think there's a lot of very effective, especially with like, using the the mold to signify like the creeping of like decay and um like evil almost through the house um and centered on this uh stained glass window that was rescued from like the ancestral home that was on the property before the house was built where like the mold just kind of like emanates from it um so just from a you know very base level perspective of watching a horror movie it works really well as a horror movie Although maybe I think people, if they don't have the ability to like think in an abstract manner, like might be disappointed by the end because it's like, yes, where's the resolution at that point? Because you didn't kill the evil, you didn't necessarily save the grandmother, but you like having you identify the main criticism, yeah, having like lived, you know, through like watching a loved one go through dementia, like I think it's a really brilliant allegory for how difficult it is to reconcile yourself with someone that you're seeing that you used to know as they lose their faculties in that respect. And as they become a different person and they do things that don't make sense and they forget things that you think like, why can't you remember this like simple thing? And it's like, you know, using the house almost is like the, the house is like symbolic for, like the whole of the person and you know the grandmother is like inhabiting still inhabiting that space but sometimes doesn't recognize it and sometimes isn't the same and things shift and things aren't where they were supposed to be and i don't know i think it's really brilliant and the idea that like when you when they finally reveal fully that the the stained glass was originally in this like cabin that was built by their um forefathers 
And when that cabin was torn down, the stained glass window was removed and put in this new house. And it's like just this perfect, like symbolic representation of really like this, one of the scariest things for being like a living human, which is like genetics and like what you, what you carry from one generation to another. And, you know, this idea that you, you can't leave your past behind and you can't, you know, you can never do anything to fully get rid of it. It's always there. And it's like, for all the good things that you get passed down from generation to generation, there's also these scary, like underlying things and, you know, like dementia and Alzheimer's and just like your degradation as a person, as you get older, that's one of those things. And like, I think it's beautiful at the end when Emily Mortimer, who's kind of been trying to push her mother away and put her in a home for the whole movie, finally embraces it. And is like, you know, accepting of the fact that her mother, while changed, you know, because of this disease is still her mother. <clears throat> and it's at that point, like, you know, when they reveal that she has that same thing in her where you can see it repeating mm-hmm. um, with the daughter. So, so from that respect, I think it's actually a really beautiful movie in terms of like the acceptance of, you know, like you can't just like shove your loved one away and you can't ignore, you know, when they have these difficulties, but also from a horrific perspective, like how terrifying an idea that is, to lose your faculties like that and to see someone that you love, like go through that. So. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, they, um, I, I thought that it had, I thought throughout it, it did an effective job at this idea of dread growing as a horror movie. Um, I guess I saw like, probably where it was going but um it didn't stop the last 30 minutes from being extremely effective even if it does build towards this kind of deeper point of being like a meditation on dimension genetics and you know all those things she just mentioned and i thought that was a really great description of you know of, of what this movie's really about like um at its core um i thought it was really effective <clears throat> almost like where the granddaughter gets a taste of what it's like by having to go through the house and seeing the geometry of the house fucked up and not making any sense. And it's like, almost like she's like sliding on ceilings and stuff like that at times. Like, you know, I thought that was extremely um, effective in the sense that like the what's happened in her grandmother's mind to that house has now become a reality for her. And I thought that took it into a somewhat of a supernatural level almost that kept you guessing a little bit of what was happening. Um, so I thought that was an effective, some of those things like that were effective in keeping you guessing, even if you kind of sensed what was going on in the movie. Um, the only, this is such a weird criticism, but this movie is extremely dark. Yes. Yep. And I thought that the darkness, it was too dark at times. Um, it actually, I was so hard to see sometimes for me, like what was the, what I was even supposed to be focusing on that um, in, in some of the, especially in that last half hour at times that um, I found the darkness distracting actually. Uh, other than that, I agree with you. I think it's a, you're right. It's a beautiful movie um, uh, by the end. And I, it is people that are going and expecting horror when they get that, when they're presented with that seem to buck at it. Um, 
where it's not really a horror movie. Like, uh, for instance, um, Angelica Jade Bastian, who's a film critic, um, and it, that's very nice to have a female film critic when we're dealing with the modern times, because the only one we have in the past is Pauline Kale, pretty much, um, to ever reference. But uh, she credits the movie very much like you do in terms of it, you know, taking uh, dementia, as she calls a bedrock of horror. She thinks it's really effective. Um, she wonders about these movies recently, though, uh, like this, and she also references The Babadook and Hereditary. Um, these films that, let me see what she says, that instills dread from the very beginning, but the promise of this mood is never fully realized. Instead, Relic is, an, is emblematic of much of the modern horror landscape that seems reticent to explore the possibilities the genre allows. But when the film finally makes overtures to outright horror, it founders, falling short of the depth and perception of its dramatic stakes. In many ways, Relic feels emblematic of a much more modern horror landscape that ensues genuine thrills. It isn't that there is a problem with a horror film relying primarily on dread or choosing to be a more quiet exploration of what the genre can do. What makes this movie so frustrating is that it's end on that it ends on an intriguing message about what we inherit, what we're bound to go through our families, but without the heft of sincere horror behind it, as opposed to dread, I'm assuming she's saying. Um, Relic falls short of the potential, and we're left wondering how terrifying this message actually is. Um, so do you, I, I, it's, a, it's a very, I think, like keen distinction that she's making. I don't know if I agree with it, but it is a very keen distinction um, of this idea. Does it actually meet, get into being a horror film to some degree? Um, or does it actually push that away for its message? by the end see i think it works as both i mean i i think had this movie had a larger budget then maybe you could have married the two concepts a little better because to your point it is really dark but a lot of that darkness is just hiding yeah you know what i mean like a, a lack of like big budget effects really. sure yeah and it still is done really effectively, I think. And again, like, I think the use of like mold, like that pervasive, creeping, like insidious, like whatever you want to like spores or whatever that mold is, like, I think it's a really effective tool in showing like the sometimes almost like invisible spread of like a disease or, you know, this like what you think is evil in the beginning. And then you come to find out is really just like sickness kind of. Um, and could be considered evil too. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I, I thought it worked fine as a horror movie. I thought it worked better as allegory. Um, but I still thought it was effective in both ways, I guess. And again, I think maybe, like, I know a lot of people that have had to go through, you know, watching that happen to a loved one. And it's a scary thing to see it happen. And I think that it, yeah, I think that without being, we were just talking about so i watched a movie today called uh, moxie it's on netflix and i thought it was fine like it was a good enough movie but it was very overly direct in its message and it's like i like the subtlety of the message here and i think that you know while it may not be a perfect horror movie i think that it still is an effective representation of exactly what it attempts to put forth and i think that you know as someone who's gone through that i think you recognize it in a way that's very personal and i i don't know like i don't know what else a movie 
you know is supposed to do outside yeah. of that yeah i mean <clears throat> just because the horror is not what you expect it to be does it not make it all the idea that it doesn't it makes it not a horror doesn't really necessarily drive with me but maybe i'm missing something in the point here but um is that it still ends on horror to me regardless it's just the, not the horror that you expected it to end on um and and the and the dread now takes on a new meaning like so i i, I really don't get it myself necessarily um and also the movies that she references like this one hereditary and babadook like the that feeling of dread is the thing I like a lot of times in horror. Like ultimately, usually the payoff of a lot, a lot of horror movies isn't very good in the in the end anyway. So I actually like the build to those kind of things and just hope that it pays off. Um, so sometimes it's more the journey that I'm interested in horror than anything. You know, you else. know what else? It not in terms of like theme or plot or anything. It reminds me in tone to something like Kill List, which we both watched this year. And another movie that I had no idea about and I found to be really great. And even though there's like more a better pay, like more of a, I guess, like traditional payoff, it is that sense of like creeping dread where they do it just through unspoken things and conversations and the way that an actor like portrays an emotion on their face and the way that, you know, uh, for the 10,000th time we reference this, but like it's very Lynchian in the fact of like, how do you film an empty room or how do you film an empty chair or how do you film, yeah. you know, like the outside of a house where there's not supposed to be anyone in it. And just that anticipation of maybe seeing something like that right. builds a true sense of horror as opposed to like a jump scare and, Agreed. you know, and you and I have watched hundreds probably in the past year of horror movies that range in, whatever value from little to great and mm -hmm. like there's some of those movies that just can't get past the fact that they're just trying to cram as many stupid jump scares in them right like I, I i feel like people that can't appreciate the build like the the true building of a sense like an overall sense of atmosphere in a horror movie or people that really enjoy shit like the conjuring movies or fucking insidious or something that's just like a cartoon that's got scary looking things in its cartoon universe but never really builds any kind of sense of like fear or dread so, right yeah i agree that um, ghost is what i always call it <laughs> like there's too much substance to that shit doesn't feel like right believably scary so yeah it's well it's not i mean because the and the production value of those movies is way too high <laughs> i mean honestly right um <clears throat> they're movies for people that like to have the idea of being scared without the actuality of being right like unsettled by something and that that's far sure. is like i mean we're all adults it's not scary like i don't go to bed thinking there's like ghosts in my house or anything but like well, I, I i think there's still people that are like that though something that's unsettling that like stays with you that you think about like i thought about this movie probably for like two weeks after i saw it like pretty consistently i would just like every once in a while randomly think about a scene or i mean that's like a truly effective horror movie is something that like gets inside your brain and like stays with you so mm -hmm. you think about it sure and that's all of i think the horror movies i love the most have that um right, right. have that power to them so. yeah there's a sense of inevitability to them 
as part of that dread, I think. Um, and I think that's part of like what happens with that sense of growing dread is like, you're waiting for this inevitable horror to come. Um, and I mean, look, Kubrick doesn't, I mean, I've been revisiting like a lot of videos about the shining recently, like and stuff. And it's like Kubrick does the same thing in the shining. I mean, um, and it's just that slow methodical sense of dread just by the way he pans down a hall, you know, or like, you know, kind of floats down a hallway. I mean, um, yeah, my favorite horrors, like kind of do that. And there's a sense of like not being able to escape that, like I said, inevitability. It's like even like your favorite like horror, like Texas Chainsaw. Um, there's this idea that it's like there there's no way that there's escape. Right. You know, um, which I think is what's kind of satisfying by the end of that movie. In a, in a sick way is that there is escape and but it's crazed like it's it's broken <laughs> you know like the escape is not really an escape but like um it's for it's it's forever damaged like that girl um so it's like uh, it still has a lot of elements of that yeah i thought this was a, a really solid movie um overall and yeah certainly one of the best horrors i've watched a lot from like last year and stuff like that and yeah, this is certainly one of the better ones out of all of them. All right, let's move on to number three on your list for something a little different. Um, this is from 2017, directed by Paul Schrader. The title of the movie is First Reform. It stars Ethan Hawke, Amanda Seyfried, Philip Ettinger, Cedric Kyles, more popularly known as Cedric the Entertainer, uh, and Michael Gaston. It has a 93% from critics, a 68% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why you put it on the list? Yeah, this is a really dense movie. Um, so the basic premise is that uh, Ethan Hawke plays Father Toller, who's a um, Protestant minister of a um, historical church in New York or something. Um, yeah, it's like yeah, country New York, you know who is um his church is kind of sparsely attended um but is important because of its historical significance um including being like part of the underground railroad i guess um he's struggling with a crisis of faith in a lot of ways um both in his personal life because of the death of his son and his own like internal beliefs and just in general in relation to reconciling how the world is with how he feels the world should be. Um, Amanda Siegfried plays a young mother or young wife who um, brings her husband to see Father Toller um, because he's also having like this crisis of faith. Um, the husband is a radical environmentalist. Um, they have conversations together, but eventually the husband kills himself um, because he can't reconcile himself with the idea of like the destruction of the world um the church has been kind of uh supported for a long time by this mega church that's the cedric the entertainer is the leader of this mega church um who provides the funding to keep the church running basically since they don't really have any parishioners they're giving like alms or whatever um there's a grand celebration for the church that's coming up where it's the 250th anniversary is that right of the yes. church mm -hmm. um that's being sponsored by this local businessman who um the husband who killed himself was kind of like investigating 
because he's done a lot of things that have damaged the environment in the area. Um, and that's basically the plot. And it's like kind of leading up to can father Toller like sort of reconcile himself with that. He takes the money from these people and give his sermon. And he has this sort of budding relationship with the, um, the wife and he's sort of reticent to kind of like consummate the relationship just because I guess of his like moral and spiritual beliefs. And especially cause you know, the husband killed himself. Um, there's some metaphysical things that happen in it, especially like they have this non-sexual intimate encounter where they like kind of just lay with their bodies pressed against each other. And there's a really, um, I, in my head, I think of it as like the 2001 scene, like where they're kind of like just flying over like the earth and, um, father Toller becomes more obsessed with the idea of environmentalism and, is actually um, reconciled to blowing himself up at the sermon for the 250th um, to destroy like the church and um, these people that he feels, I guess, are destroying the environment and whatever. Um, like the mega church that's kind of like draining resources from the from the community for its own benefit. Um, but it's uh, the love of Amanda Seyfried's character that sort of pulls him out of it. Um, I don't know. I still feel like I didn't talk about, about like so many of the themes and stuff. The movie really is it's tremendous performances in this movie from pretty much every single principal. Um, Ethan Hawke is amazing in this role. Um, I think that since his like heyday of the 90s um, he's really become like probably one of the best working actors in Hollywood, just in terms of his his range and his ability to really just kind of like inhabit different characters. Um, I really like Amanda Seyfried a lot. I think she's really good in this. Um, Cedric the Entertainer in a small role is really powerful. Um, there's no like cookie cutter villain. Like it really is in the same way that Relic has this like slow burn build to it. It's the same thing. Gaston is a little bit cookie cutter, I would say the owner the ceo of the company yeah but only only because he's so underdeveloped as a character i mean sure. he really yeah. there to whatever to move a scene so to speak mm -hmm. um it's very reminiscent in a lot of ways of like some some of bergman's yeah, yeah. Um, meditations on spirituality and the role of the church and then in the community um specifically winter light which i think is probably um was probably a big influence on the writing of this movie yeah um it, it was um yeah schrader talks about that yeah but hawk is just so brilliant in it and very very reserved and very sad and very human um a very believable character like it's incredibly tense at the end of this movie where you think that he might end up like killing himself and other people because you don't want him to like you want him to to get past it and to survive so i don't know just um i really loved watching it i was really blown away by it i don't know how i had never heard about it like i didn't know anything about it until um i was just looking at <clears throat> honestly i was looking at a24 movies that i hadn't seen and trying to um complete like their catalog because i find that most of the time i love their movies so 
Yeah, I, I don't know what it is. The the only thing that was nominated, this movie was nominated for its best screenplay that year. Um which is really surprising to me. Um <clears throat> Yeah, I, I've I've been watching a lot of like uh Hollywood Reporter variety like roundtables and stuff in the past like, you know, six weeks or so. And I've seen Ethan Hawke talk a little bit about this movie, and I saw Paul Schrader talk about this movie back in 2017, um, before I even watched it. And um, I went back and kind of like revisited the Schrader one just briefly to kind of hear him talk about it. And the two movies were um, the one I'm familiar with, Winter Light, because you had me watch it. I think it's on the most depressing movies list, if I remember correctly. And then um, Robert Bresson's. Uh, diary of a country priest oh which, yeah yeah, yeah which i great which i've never seen but um <clears throat> those are the two things that kind of he pulls from and uh, i believe that's on the criterion channel if i'm not mistaken oh really yeah i probably should have looked there i i just don't think of it a lot of times but definitely I, something i want to check out now but um yeah, there. This was something he's been working for, working towards this movie. He says for a long time, like he's been writing, like slowly writing this in his mind for it seemed like fifteen twenty years. Um, and I think it shows. I think this is a really tight script in terms of like packing in so many different themes into this movie. I think it's really tight for what it is. And he's just showing you what you need to see. And I think this kind of... I think it mixes, even though it's considered a drama, I think it does. Like, I remember, I don't know if you remember me texting you this, like, as I was watching, I was like, this is almost turning into a horror movie because there's this sense of dread that's, like, growing in me as I'm watching it. And that's when he's becoming more obsessive about the environmental things. And there is this kind of, like... It's, it's that horror that comes with the inevitable that I was just talking about. And, like, I was like, oh, oh my God, he's going to, like, you know, blow himself up, you know? He's going to, like, you hey. know, blow people up. <laughs> and ultimately, that... Um, now, I don't know if you know this. The original ending of the movie, apparently, was him drinking the Drano that he pours. Mm. And he decides to change it, like, at the last minute um, before he actually, like, blows everybody up. Um, and he changed it to the ending that you described. I think it's the right ending, this one, um, because I think it leaves you on... It, it's it, Either one would have subverted your expectation, right, of, like, sure. where yep. this goes. But I think that turning it into a story of hope at the end is the right move and you know where he's trying like he's obviously can't find the spiritual comfort that he wants right um after the death of his son even as a priest he can't or sorry as a, as a, as a preacher he can't find the peace that he needs through god to some degree and um he find you know and he can't give that comfort <laughs> because the guy that he does try to give that comfort to you know kills himself um and i think to find it through the possibility of caring for another child and finding it in the physical 
and in the earthly as opposed to the spiritual um or maybe combining those two things in some way i think is a really deep message of hope by the end of this movie um that i really glad they want that route rather than the um the super depressing um route um of drano or blowing people up i I thought it like ended in a good place i agree with that yeah it's interesting like i diary of a country priest is on a criterion by the way there's a bunch of other um breasted movies on there but not that Mm. um although uh hazard balthazar or whatever um balthazar the donkey is uh definitely worth watching you should watch it sometime okay um i yeah like the the parallel between um max von Sydow and um i can't remember the name of the actor in uh winter light having their conversation gunner gunner borison or something like that sorry having their conversations between about the inevitability of death and nuclear destruction nuclear and that one, destruction right? yeah. yeah and like you know um what's his name um Cedaw is just trying to find like some like small lifeline through from god through this priest and he can't be bothered to even do that like he's so bitter and so full of like loathing and then the opposite side of that, which is the same guy, you know, it's environmental destruction, but it's the same thing, like the same fear, trying right. to find the same thing through a priest that's actively engaged in trying to help him. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it's the same result, like, I think that's, I think that's an incredibly powerful part of the movie, which is just that sometimes it's just what's in a person and there's like, you know, no matter how hard you try, sometimes you can't save like someone who's, you know. Right. And while I know that the the argument in Winter Light about nuclear destruction resonated at that time much more um, than maybe, maybe it does now, um, certainly this argument that Schrader's chosen to include from the prospective father about global warming and climate change certainly is something that resonates right now <laughs> um, because, and, and just so everybody's keeping track so far on this fresh five list, um, happy mother's day, by the way, we have, um, you know, generational dementia among ladies. And now we have this very um, effective argument that this prospective father makes about how you shouldn't bring children into the world um, in this movie. Um, And then we have another mother thing later on. Um, But uh, I do think that he makes, I think it was one of the things that first struck me in the first like 20 minutes of this movie is being having not brought a child into the world and not having not like ever wanted to necessarily like while I've never thought about this in my 20s or maybe even my early 30s it is something that I've thought about more and more you know as I've gotten older is this idea of is it even ethical (laughs) to to bring a child into the world so it's something that resonated with me but it's certainly something that resonates a lot I think with generation even younger than me um in thinking about these things 
um, as we've learned more and more about science um, and what the potential future holds. And um, it's a fascinating, and just how unequipped Toller is to deal with this and how you, it's a brilliant performance by Hawk in that scene. I mean, he's great throughout, but it's like, it's a brilliant performance of like just how subtly uncomfortable he's becoming as he realizes how unequipped he is to deal with this argument, largely because there's part of him that sympathizes with the argument that's being made. A big part of it. Right. <laughs> and, and it's a brilliant acting performance as you just see that he's trying to pull things out of a toolkit that he himself isn't even mastered to use. Um, and he's, He's so um, sure of himself when he first goes to their house to have right. the, the conversation that he knows what to say to like bring this guy around. And then basically it works the other way where the guy brings him right around to his way of thinking. Sure. Sure. Um, I personally, I, I agree. I don't know how this movie, how, how I didn't hear about this movie more and i don't know how this movie didn't get nominated especially when i looked at that year for more um if this were me i think this is the it's not my favorite movie on this list i think it's the best movie on this list um from mm. from a filmmaking standpoint um like in terms of everything that goes into it uh, it's it, it's the most ambitious and it's the most uh, I don't want to say professional but the most um, I mean obviously Paul Schrader's got more like directing experience than every other person on this list put together so sure like that's just and right and, and, he, and he's look he's old like he's been thinking about this movie for a long time he's pulling stuff from movies that he loves, um, you know, as he's thinking about it and kind of like coming up with his own thoughts on all this, which his own thoughts, by the way, or is the reason he, you know, is we're all fucked and we're all going to die um, sooner rather than later as a people. So he just writes and directs as a way of coping, um, which is about as dark as you can get. Um, so it kind of shows what this movie is definitely is an extension of what's going on in Paul Schrader's mind, um, to some degree. And because he's this to me, it's like the movie, the number one movie on your list, which I love, absolutely love, um, I think is more indicative and representative of something that is more modern. I think the reason I like this so much is because it is so classical in nature to me. Um, Sure. And it, it is something to me that, like, you would see on Criterion. Like, because it is very classically done, um, the entire thing. and But it still is very modern in its setting. And um, I think Schrader's done a really good job, despite being in his 70s, of melding modern life with this very classical setup um about spirituality and faith and all these things and uh, i really love this movie i thought it was um i thought it's fantastic and i think it's yeah. one of the best movies that i've seen in a couple of years probably same here i feel the same way about the next two as well in a lot of ways so 
All right. Well, number two on your list is 2020's The Kid Detective. It is directed by Evan Morgan and it stars Adam Brody, Sophie Nelise, Sarah Sutherland, and Peter McNeil. has an 82% from critics and is 76% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why it's number two on the list? Audiences are dumb, man. I actually um, thought this would be the number one movie in terms of audiences, possibly that watched it, but surprised to me. Uh, Adam Brody plays um, the titular kid detective, uh, who's now a how old is he? Like thirty, maybe, or something like that. Um, yeah, something like that. He was basically uh, um, Encyclopedia Brown style, like child detective in his town where he would use um logic to solve like simple crimes like who stole the whatever candy out of the teacher's desk or right, you know i mean right. it's like very much like encyclopedia brown in mm-hmm. that respect um but his childhood sweetheart was kidnapped and the police turned to him to solve the crime and he could not so over the years interim years from him being the successful little kid detective to his modern life he's not changed his job he's still like a detective who finds like these small like lost things and solves these like inconsequential mysteries um but now he's an adult so he's got all the issues of being an adult like living with his parents um kind of not really having any sort of drive to do anything um he rents an office where he has a secretary who's basically just like a jerk to him um to solve these small crimes so um when he and played by adam brody in what i think is a pretty fantastic performance um so he's approached by a uh, high school student named carolyn who wants him to help investigate the murder of her boyfriend um even though he's never investigated like a murder case before he takes it on as a way to kind of prove himself and get back on the good graces of the community. So, you know, he takes this high school girl's case for free. Um, And that sort of rolls into this really well done, intricate, but still simple enough to not feel like bogged down um, kind of web of secrets that he finds behind like the veneer of this town. Um, and masterfully filmed in the sense that like sometimes you don't know if he's actually finding secrets or if it's just your perspective that makes you think that he is because sometimes it seems like he's kind of just grasping at straws or like making Mm -hmm. like nothing like something out of nothing um some really great stuff with like this um what's the name of the town of like the gang of like young toughs um there's like a motorcycle gang that's led by this guy that he went to high school with and he um what what did he get him in trouble for oh geez yeah got him suspended because he blamed him for stealing something out of a teacher's desk but he ended up being wrong about it um and he develops a really good relationship with this young girl like where he um you know they kind of become like friends almost and this antagonistic relationship with the kid that he suspects of killing the boyfriend because he was in love with carolyn who's the young girl um including one of the funniest scenes 
where he's trapped in their house for hours because um, yes. he he broke into like kind of hack into the kid's computer and then the kid came home um and he was stuck in his room and then he moved over to his little sister's room and he gets captured in the little sister's room and basically prosecuted as like a so like arrested as like a sex pervert for mm-hmm. hiding in his room um but then remarkably in the end he um stumbles upon like the actual truth of what happened to his um uh to his childhood friend um and ends up solving the murder and finding the girl and um it's really satisfying like the resolution i think um (laughs) including one of in my opinion one of the best endings in a movie i've seen in a really long time um which is him finally gaining the success and moving out and having his own apartment um building like adult relationships and just kind of breaking down with his parents um from all the years of kind of repressed like adult emotions that he's had um trying to mean like relive this feeling of success he had as a child and just all of it crashed over um fuck what is the song that plays sugar town or something yeah yeah um completely incongruous to the scene but it's 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 brilliant well right it well it overlaps with the childhood because that's what plays at the very beginning of the movie as well um and it kind of overlaps with this idea of like almost like lost innocence and childhood that's been you know uh that he's had as he's just you know become a in his mind a failure for the past you know 20 years yeah and then it's the see i don't even want to i don't necessarily want to ruin the twist because i think it's really brilliant the way that the movie kind of wraps it all up yeah and connects um all the various like plot threads throughout to make it really just um really satisfying ending and really a justification of um abe adam brody's characters um doggedness and resilience in a lot of ways even though like a lot of it was just a kind of stroke his own ego um it reminded me very much of brick yes which is another one of my favorite movies of the mm-hmm. past like couple decades um in the sense of taking the tropes of a hard hard-boiled noir and placing them in an environment where those tropes shouldn't necessarily work but they do really well um in a, a high school you know in brick and then here it's this small town um, almost like a Mayberry style <clears throat> town that, um, but really it, it is like the, what's encyclopedia around Beverly Cleary? No, it's something else. Yeah. I've read those books. But, but, but that, but that's the interesting twist of this though. And you're right about the, I, I, oddly, I never even thought of encyclopedia around, even though you're exactly right. But, um, but you're right. It's almost like, what if encyclopedia Brown had had to become a real detective as he had aged, you know, and what would happen to that. And as he had to go out into the real world, which is harsher and colder. And it's like, here's Encyclopedia Brown unable to actually, when he gets that real case of a death, unable to solve it because he's not experiencing with the cold, harsh realities of the world. And then feels like, you know, he can never deal with it. And now you get him 20 years later um, and, you know, 
he has to live in the cold, harsh, noirish world. And how does he navigate that at the age of whatever, 34, whatever it is that he probably is? Um, it's a it's brilliant. A where, yeah, like this darkness exists. Yeah, brilliant concept. Uh, it actually, this is completely incongruous, but tonally it reminds me of something like what the first chapter of the it movies was going for Hmm. in the feeling of like that you know what's behind the main street of like this seemingly like idyllic town yeah like what what secrets are there you know what because it's almost like a joke like what's what yeah i was i was thinking more blue velvet myself but um yeah that's a that's a really apt comparison too um i can't remember the name of this fucking gang yeah i i, I wish i could help you but it's I, I something can't. it's something ridiculous like the apple bottom gang or something it's something like right that, but, right yeah um but it's I, that thing it's like it's it's like these words and concepts that would fit perfectly in those like young adult reader like crime novels when we were kids right but then with this actual like harshness behind it of like a real world setting it's just it, it's really brilliant the way it's done and like i i'm I'm a pretty big fan of adam brody in general i think he's a really underrated and underutilized actor um he was a guy that had so much like felt like he had so much promise at one point he was um what with the oc and the small role on gilmore girls i know that we both liked um dave right was his name on there yeah um there's a couple of is what is what kind of ruined him as a like an actor that could be taken seriously just because that show ran for so long and is such like look i unabashedly love the oc but it's it's ridiculous melodrama mm-hmm. it's like your love for one tree hill i mean like you recognize that how bad it is yeah yeah how ludicrous like most of the the stories are but it's still right. something about it that like sucks you in but sure he's in this and his small role in <clears throat> promising young woman like he just really like two really great performances and that's a really small role like almost inconsequential but he really nails it and i think he's amazing in this yeah it could he be a thing is, where you just need to get distance from that role and yeah, i mean it's it, it's a lot like robert pattison in a lot of ways like you watch him mm-hmm. in movies he does now and he's so and you know also um what's his name um fucking harry potter uh daniel radcliffe yeah uh-huh. like these guys that have these attachments to <clears throat> very like i don't know like teen oriented things and then they are able to branch out into these more adult roles and they just have like a lot of talent i always love seeing that like i love seeing actors that you maybe have underestimated at some point mm-hmm. like just come and like nail these amazing performances yeah, I think all three of those guys actually are super talented, and I'm really excited about like the future with like this crop of twenty to thirty something actors that are out making movies now. Yeah, yeah, but I I was going to watch this again because you told me about this. I think in like February, if I remember. Yeah, this was another Saturday morning special where it was just like, oh, what's this movie? Yeah, like? it was like a Sunday when you told me about it, I think. And like, you were like, hey, you should watch this. And like, I was like, you know what? I'm, it's one of the few days I didn't have anything to do on a Sunday. And I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to like spend the 5 dollars here and, and watch it. 
<clears throat> being a crime movie. And um, yeah, I absolutely loved it. I was getting ready. I want uh, Friday to go uh, watch it. Like, and I was just going to rent it again, figuring it would probably be three ninety nine now. And it, it moved. It's on Stars now for free. No, oh, huh. um, it just moved Friday to Stars. Um, and my Stars la- my Star subscription that I got for a month um, lapsed on Wednesday. And the price of it now is to pull up the earlier conversation fourteen ninety nine if you want to go ahead and buy it. Um, so I did not rewatch it since February, uh, but um, yeah, I really love this. Like when I when I watched it then, and uh, it's something I definitely want to go back and revisit very soon, actually, um, because I I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was a very pleasant surprise for me. And again, just like one of the things I love most about just watching movies and. <clears throat> not really staying up so much on like what's coming out even though like, i try and pay attention it's just every once in a while you'll find this random like gem out of nowhere and it just like blows you away and it's such a great feeling yeah. of like discovery and newness and yeah i was um super impressed with it yeah same all right so number one on your list is also from 2017 uh, it is Lady Bird, directed by Greta Gerwig, and it stars Saoirse Ronan, Laurie Metcalf, Timothy Chalamet, Lucas Hedges, and Tracy Letts. It has a 99% from critics, a 79% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and why it's number one on your list? Uh, so it's a coming-of-age story set in the early 2000s in California. Um, Ronan plays the titular uh, Lady Bird. Um, a name that she's given to herself as sort of a badge of independence from her parents. Um, she attends a school that has like a large wealthy population, but her family is very much lower middle class. Um, her dad is a computer programmer of some sort um, who loses his job. Her mom is a very demanding almost a harpy at times um towards like trying to push um her daughter specifically to be successful and to live within her means um lady bird wants to go to school on the east coast which her mother says is impossible because of their finances um her and her best friend um who's a overweight girl named something i can't remember her name um uh, it's a uh, be is a be uh beanie is the actress's name um uh julie so they join a theater group where lady bird becomes enamored with um the timothy chalamet character um they develop a relationship um she feels like she's in love although they um never consummate because he says that he wants it to be special or whatever um she ends up going to thanksgiving dinner at his house much to the dismay of her mother who wanted her to be with them on her last thanksgiving as a high school student um turns out that the timothy chalamet character is gay so they break up um she gets a job at a coffee shop and it's 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 the danny character right yeah that's timothy chalamet is it no that's Lucas Hedges. No, who's Timothy Chalamet play? Oh, he plays the um he's, the asshole 
Yeah, like uh, pseudo intellectual. Right. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't know who that dude is. I just know that everybody hates him. So I assume that that who Shalomay. Yeah. Oh, really? People hate him. Oh yeah, yeah. There's a lot of a lot of hatred towards him. I don't know why. I don't know anything right. about him. That's who's playing um Paul Andreas and doing. Hmm. Anyway, oh yeah, that works then. Um, because he really does have that brooding, Uh spice-eyed mentality to him. Right. Um. So she gets a job in a coffee shop where she becomes friends with um Danny, who is the Chalamet character, I guess. Yeah, Kyle. I know who that guy is. Let me just tell my story the way I want to tell it, you motherfucker. Get off your back about that. Okay. Right. Get all the way off. (laughs) Um. She befriends Kyle and Jenna, right? Did I get that name right? Uh, yes. Um, who are two uh, popular kids, which causes sort of the disillusion of her relationship with um, uh, her best friend. Um, but the whole relationship with the popular kids is based on the lie that she's wealthy. Um, she ends up losing her virginity to the Kyle character the Chalamet character um, who sort of lies to her and says that he's a virgin, but then reveals that he's not like after he has sex with her. Um, She gets expelled from school um, or suspended from school. um, And that's when it's revealed that she's not wealthy because she's been using David, right? David's the gay kid. Danny. Danny's grandmother's house she's been saying that was her house even though it wasn't so her new wealthy friend finds out that she's not true but they stay friends anyway um so on the night they're supposed to go to prom the popular kids want to ditch prom and go to a party and she decides that she wants to like still have some semblance of this of a high school life so she goes and reconciles with her best friend and they go to prom together um there's a subplot where she's accepted. She's on a wait list for a school in New York, even though she's been accepted to like USC or something. Um, and her mother doesn't know. And then her mother finds out and sort of like cuts her off emotionally, like for her last couple of um, her last month, that she's at home. Um, there's a really like really emotional scene where Lady Bird is dropped off at the airport to go away to college because she can make with financial aid and with some help from her dad and the mother like won't talk to her. And then she goes back to reconcile and lady bird is gone. And then um, when she's in college, um, she starts to use her actual Christine, I think is her actual name. So she's her actual name again, Mm -hmm. Um, just as a sign of like kind of the maturing and the acceptance of like her role in her family Um, and finds these letters that her dad had left in her suitcase that her mom had written to her about, how much she loved her and how much like she worried about her and just wanted the best for her. And um, it's implied at the end, you know, that then they see each other, there'll be a reconciliation. Um, Really like the movie. So this is Gerwig's um, directorial debut, right? Like this is her first solo directing effort. I think I believe so. Um, Uh, Yeah. Solo. Yes. Mm -hmm fucking brilliant like interweaving of pathos and comedy and it just like it 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 perfectly captures i think the feelings of adolescence without like overdoing it like it doesn't devolve into being like mean girls or again like 
that moxie movie that i was telling you about that i watched today like it doesn't take shortcuts to get you to the point where you feel like you're actually watching a group of people that could be high school kids in the real world like it it never i don't know it, it never stoops to what i feel like are the easy way outs which is like the the bullying angles or the i don't know like the tropes of like like what you would see in like 80s teen comedies like it's just it, it sure. rises of it and it gives you these fully fleshed out well written it reminds me a lot of freaks and geeks in that respect where like you're mm-hmm. seeing these characters who are identifiably high school kids with complex emotions and lives and it does it in the span of whatever like 90 minutes which is amazing and it builds this really strong dynamic with her and her family and her and her friend groups and stuff. And she's really just an amazing performance from Ronan um, and Laurie Metcalf too. Like I think Laurie Metcalf, Laurie Metcalf is, the other is yes. stand out in this movie. Just this amazing performance is this, this mother who can't help herself, but point out her, her disappointment in like everything, mm-hmm. but it's because she can't find the way to, talk about how much she loves all the people that are around her and how much she just wants like the best for her family. And it's, um, I mean, it's just really, it's, it's an amazing movie. It looks beautiful. There's some really great cinematography in it for just being really small in the sense that it's filmed around like real world locales, like, like a high school and the coffee shop and, um, combine Metcalf's performance with the cinematography you're talking about that airport scene with her pulling away. And how oh, yeah. how Gerwig, in her first real directorial movie that she has, like where she's behind the camera, allows that camera to sit as long as she does, and and has the confidence to do that, and just let Metcalf act as she's driving away. That scene is just that shows a hell of a lot of confidence, I think, in somebody. Um, yeah. She she has it's almost like Sydney Sydney Lumet or maybe even like early Coppola is what she reminds me of in the way that she films like um streets and buildings and just the way that she films things. Like it's very much she has that classical like seventies feel to her direction right like she could have set that movie in the 70s and it would have felt yeah. like it was made then i mean it's it's like it's got a really good sure. there's another movie that i've been meaning to watch that like when i see um shots from it and i think it was a i think jonah hill directed it it's called mid 90s hmm. which has a similar feel to it but that feels more like kids to me than it does um but yeah like it and not at all similar movies, but like the way that like Sidney Lumet films that small city street and dog day afternoon, like there's mm-hmm. scenes in this movie where it's got the same closeness, but I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. Like, it's just this feeling of like, it's like we, we talked about this when we, were, when we talked about across 110th street in the sense of like, it's filming a world where the world feels lived in where you don't feel like you're looking at sets ever. Like you feel like you're looking at Uh homes and businesses and airports and whatever that aren't just 
you know like you watch like the ending of garden state and that airport doesn't feel and i love that ending like don't get me wrong mm-hmm. but it it feels like you're watching a movie but like in comparison you watch this and it really feels like you're watching you know this girl like traveling off to go across country and it's such an emotionally powerful scene especially because metcalf is just so fucking good in that role so yeah but yeah one of my favorite movies i'm i'm a pretty big sucker for like the coming of age dramedy type thing um and we just talked about this with kid detective and brick in comparison but it's a very similar feeling to me where it's like it's not exploit it's not exploitive in the same way like when you watch kids where kids is almost like exploitation but it still doesn't shy away from the fact that these kids drink and do drugs and have sex and lie and make mistakes and they're real like fully formed people and it's just um just really great really impressive yeah it it does it does like you said it doesn't go into cliche which is the thing that i really appreciate about it as a coming of age story it doesn't fall into like these like 80s or 90s tropes necessarily it feels much more uh, genuine in terms of the actual things that might happen um and i liked that it didn't like that it actually dealt in a positive way with the fact that it's a lower middle class family um because like okay so in some ways i have to feel i feel like i almost have to like i really like this movie a lot like i think it's a fantastic movie that's part of it i think is that it takes the perspective of the lower middle class in this because otherwise it like feels like this is a white person movie and one of the reasons why you can't get the fucking names right is because they're all fucking these white names right um um kyle and danny and jenna and you know i but and look her husband um greta gerwig's husband is 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 noah baumbach um who is like the whitest of white people movies even though i really like marriage story last year um is the whitest of white people um in terms of his movies the squid and the whale is one of the ones i joke about all the time in terms of um you know my hatred of white people movies i i think taking the perspective uh girl taking the perspective of the lower middle class family here uh, rather than the upper middle class family is something that really adds a large dimension to this movie and i think focusing just as much on the family as as a coming of age as opposed to the things with friends and changes of friends and those kind of things and that core mother daughter relationship is what makes this movie strong because this now becomes a movie to me largely about a mother's disapproval inside of a poor family and how the daughter grows up and deals with that yeah as opposed to this well while that's definitely coming of age don't get me wrong it's this very kind of like it's it's an actual movie as opposed to just a coming of age story where you have a very distinct character and very distinct supporting characters that like you know feed into that overall story and i um i don't know i i just think it take took a probably someone who grew up as a middle-class woman 
to tell a story, a white person's story that I could actually appreciate <laughs> as opposed to an upper middle class man um, to tell those white people stories. <laughs> I'm going to make sure to put like fucking, um, I don't know, Barcelona or something on my next list. Um, see, those, but, but what? Those are the ones that I hate. And I, I love those movies, but I hate them at the same time because it's that. See, I think Stillman is there. There's a mocking aspect of those movies, though, that I appreciate. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, because she actually was in one of Stillman's movies that I haven't seen, Gerwig. Um, because I have been like looking into her like more as an actress. Uh, I can't remember what it was called now. Um, but uh, she she is in one of his later. Damsel is what it's called. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yep. Because I know I have Francis Ha on my playlist. That like, a... Francis Ha is a fucking amazing movie. Yeah, I I love Francis Ha. Yeah, um, because uh, yeah, I'm I'm very interested in Gerwig um, right now in terms of just like, you know, and I I mean I'll even watch Little Women like when I can find it for free. Um, <clears throat> all right. So, any final thoughts for this? Really enjoyable list to do. Um, yeah. I always love doing the fresh five because it gives me the ability to talk about, like you said, to be in the intro, like a wide range of genres and decades and whatever styles. And I, I really enjoy all all five movies on this list, and I think they're all very much worth seeking out and watching if you haven't seen them. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I, I always enjoy these lists too, and uh, yeah, these five movies were all really good in one way or another. So, all right. Well, thank you for listening this week. And uh, have a good week. See you next week.